Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, edging closer to closeout on one of government's biggest telecom contracts, a customer experience boost for federal employees and retirees, and the cyber portfolio at the Energy Department goes for zero. It's Monday, October 31st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Onboarding foreign vendors is the next step for the Defense Department's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, according to the Pentagon's point person for the program. Stacy Busjanic says international vendors may require a, quote, additional rulemaking capability. DOD officials are aiming for an interim rule for domestic vendors in March of 2023. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has a summer 2023 target date to implement the Oracle Cerner Electronic Health Records System. Federal Electronic Health Records Modernization Office spokesperson Corey Hughes tells FedScoop the system would cover 300 NOAA officers and 400 divers. NOAA says the system will manage health records for its commissioned officer corps. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The State Department's new award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract could be worth up to a billion and a half dollars. But not every agency has made the commitment to EIS yet that state has. Kay Ely's principal at Deep Water Point, she's former director of IT schedule programs at the General Services Administration at ELC 2022. I asked her what gets EIS to the finish line. I think just being on the Fatara scorecard is, you know, a wonderful thing because it raises the visibility, it raises significance, it raises the importance of that program and what needs to be done. I think that there has been a lot that has been accomplished with um, the modernization of, of the infrastructure. And I think that is really gonna help agencies. But I think the awareness and the awareness at all levels you know, of an agency, I mean, agency leaders are so busy every day doing so many things that's actually very helpful for them to have a scorecard that says, hey, look, right now, this is really important to us. What do you take away from that? What would you like to see GSA take away from EIS to apply to the next big one? Because they'll continue to come down the pike. I think I think what GSA wants to learn from that, and they're already applying it, I see that in other large acquisitions, is saying, what have we learned, and what can we do to get ahead of this, and where can we have the conversation with relevant agencies and our customers to see what they need so that we can be 10 steps ahead next time. How necessary is the congressional oversight, though, that we talked about a moment ago with the Vitara scorecard, to basically say, not only does GSA OMB think this is important. We do too, and it's going to impact the way that you get money. 
Yeah, well, and it, you know, one of the two of the panels that I've heard today here at EIS, I mean, here, sorry, <laughs> what I've heard here at Hershey has been about collaboration, everybody working together and asking all the questions and, and making sure everybody's informed and making sure that, you know, we pull back the curtain and everybody has the kind of transparency they need to move something forward. What's the right balance of that? Because it, it, I imagine it gets to a point where there's only so much the GSA can do. And it's incumbent on the agencies to actually then take up the mantle and do what they're supposed to do. And you can't, you're not in GSA anymore, but <laughs> as GSA can only take that so far, they only have so much autonomy. I guess it's, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make a drink. Well, I think it's, I think it's incumbent on GSA to, yes, lead the horse to water, help them understand the significance, show them in a lot of ways the tools the you know the information that they need to modernize or be successful and uh one of the speakers this morning was talking about it that it's okay to share information i think it was uh tracy uh martinez from d martinez from uh, gsa yep. was talking about it's okay for agencies to share information with each other and i think Historically, I mean, I started in the government in 1988, so it was a long time ago, but we were not sharing information as well, and we were kind of working in stovepipes, but I think that's where GSA, and honestly, that's what OMB can do as well in their role as an oversight and policy-driven organization, is help make sure everybody has the information they need. Oh, Social Security over here is doing some tremendous work. You guys should go talk to them or learn from them, and I think that's where GSA can and help that collaboration. How proactive should they be about that? I think as proactively as proactive as you know as possible. I think um, there's so many great councils. You've got the CIO council, the CAO council, you know, the CFO council, and there's all that information sharing already. Mm -hmm. But I think the more that uh, OMB can help spear that forward, I think the more uh, progress the agencies are going to make, be able to make, because they don't know what they don't know. They have no idea that, uh, you know, Gary Washington, you know, over at his agency is doing these tremendous things. What information should be shared? Is it as simple as these are the success stories that we're having that we're seeing, or is there more to it than that? No, I think, think it is that simple. And then I think in that information sharing and that information gathering, it's, 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 a, it's not just a push, it's a push and pull. So there's also, like I said, I mentioned a couple of, of you know, great folks to go talk to. Dave Shy from GSA mm -hmm. is another great person to go talk to and say, hey, do you mind sharing your success stories, how you did this, what you did? Um, and I, I just think that'll really help move the needle. Is there any role for GSA, do you think, to have a stick to go with those carrots that you just talked about? Or is that not the right place for that? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the right place for it. I don't think that's GSA's role, and I don't think they want that to be their role. Um, I think it's okay to get assistance from OMB. Um, you know, I really enjoyed my time at OMB. I actually enjoyed my time in the federal government, all the agencies I was at. It was just a great, great place to build a career. But I think at OMB, it was really interesting when I did have a chance to go talk to the agencies during the budget cycle. I, I felt 
felt like I was from that commercial E.F. Hutton where the whole room went <laughs> quiet because as soon as OMB starts to speak, people do listen. Everybody so they have an incredible platform, and I think they will continue to use that. All right. What will you continue to watch as a measure of success? Not just for EIS, but a lot of these vehicles are... I mean, they're difficult. They're, they're really tough to roll out, and they're hitting kind of bumps in the road. Well, I think it's, again, it comes back to it's all about, it's all about mission. Mm. What are we doing to accomplish the mission? What is, what is EIS and the industry partners that support that acquisition doing to help an agency meet their mission? And then I think, um, I think then, again, the sharing of those stories of, of how mission needs are being met. And at the end of the day, it's all about how are we serving the American pe- public? What is the customer experience? You know, is it improving for them? Social Security Administration, I mentioned them earlier. Are we helping improve the delivery of services to the to the retirees and the social social service um, security recipients? That's what it's all about. You use that term, and that term came out of the great work that one of your colleagues at GSA, Martha Doris, did for many years. Absolutely, talked about customer experience. And nobody paid any attention to her hardly. Yeah, and I, she just kept after it and kept after it. Now it's in the PMA. Well, now that you ask, I have a great story because, <laughs> as a matter of fact, the uh, director of OPM uh, is here uh, speaking to us at Hershey. And we've talked a lot about USA Jobs. Mm-hmm. And when I was at OPM, we actually, which was mm, 12 years ago, we actually did an early customer experience uh, research to look at what do the applicants think of USA Jobs? Now, what we heard was not very pleasant. Um, for one, my application just goes into a black box. I never hear anything. It's very, it's not intuitive. It's hard to follow. So we did a complete refresh of USA Jobs, and the applicant experience shot up in a very, very positive manner. And I personally talked to some of the applicants to continue that customer, I mean, that that citizen experience. And they said, hey, I didn't get the job, but I love the experience. Mm. And that's really the kind of service delivery that you want. Was that the transition where one of the private sector vendors had it and you brought it in-house yes. to OPM? And that you, you, there were a lot of raised eyebrows about that because that was kind of counterintuitive to what a lot of organizations in government were doing at the time. They yep. were pushing a lot of stuff out the yep. door. Yep. And it was it was unusual at that time yep. for an organization to bring that in house. Yeah, it was it was tough, and it was that was on me. That was you know something that I something that I was able to do while I was there. But a couple things you talked earlier about the collaboration with Congress, mm-hmm. and I had many trips down to chat <laughs> yeah, I bet. with uh, my uh, my colleagues in Congress about why we were doing it, why it made sense. Um, there was a lot we learned about the security of the applicant's data that concerned me when we were not controlling that data ourselves. So it was a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, you know, it, it, it's so great that we now have in OPM, USA Jobs, and the security of all the applicant data. Well, and you have now uh, Claire, who was the former CIO at OPM, now is a federal CIO, and Guy Cavallo came over from SBA, where he and Maria Rote did a, a huge refresh at SBA. So there's a lot of attention, not just at the agency level, but all across the enterprise of the government on what the IT structure at OPM looks like. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting times and lots of good stuff happening. And, uh, you know, 
We're we're here at the sweetest place on earth. So. That's right. There's chocolate everything. It is. Like it's, even in martinis. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. It's great to see you, Kay. Thanks right. very much. Thanks, Francis. Good to see you. You can read more about the EIS contract and USA Jobs in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on tomorrow's show, the agency that's looking at procurement from the industry perspective. Guy Torres, the Deputy Chief Procurement Officer at the Internal Revenue Service, is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. You can find that show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your shows, and always at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Thrift Savings Plan says it's improving its customer experience for federal employees after its transition to a new record-keeping system. Some TSP participants said they waited for hours on hold right after the transition happened. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, where are we now as far as trying to get customer service back on track the way that you would like it to be? in uh, the wake of the transition to the Converge system. Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis. We're making progress in terms of the call centers answering phones. We are consistently answering the phone in less than 20 seconds. Um, so people are able to get through and they're able to get questions answered. Um, where we're working on next, we measure satisfaction with those calls so to the extent that we see participant satisfaction um, not being good with a particular issue, I, you know, anything, that gives us the ability to pr provide extra training to the call centers to see if we need to tweak information on the website. So we have moved past the initial, well past the initial problems with the, the call centers, and we're now able to dial in on providing the customer service that we want to. Um, our executive director told the Employee Thrift Advisory uh, Council that that's exactly, that we want to get back to the TSP that everyone relied on and expected, and that's what we're aiming for. I note that call volume fell from August to September by more than 40%. Um, loan requests falling 15% month over month, withdrawal requests falling 4% month over month. What's your sense of, the, of what those numbers dropping means, Kim? Well, we think in terms, the loans and withdrawals are still higher than they, they previously have been. But we think the to the extent that there was pent up demand, that's been sated. And now people were moving back toward a normal rhythm. Um, and we'll have to determine what a normal rhythm is. The economy's a little wonky. The stock market, you know, is bouncing around. And so it's hard to know what factors those are playing in loans and withdrawals. Um, and in terms of the call volume, again, I think people have sort of settled into the information that they needed. And we're, again, going to find where our new normal might be. All right. Uh, some reports this week of some difficulties in the customer service realm that you're having. Um, when you get such reports, how do you deal with them either on an individual basis or on a more community basis to try to go back and fix those things for the people that have individual challenges or when you see whether it's reports from the participants themselves or 
uh, broader reports from measuring the satisfaction from folks, as you talked about a moment ago. How do you address those problems, Kim? Um, we, or our, our director of participant services, who's responsible for our record keeping contract, um, talks to the vendor regularly, almost daily at the moment. And to the extent that we see specific issues for specific participants, we follow up on those to make sure that that person, him or her, gets the service or the transaction that they need. Um, in terms of the wider areas, we can provide them some information about sort of, here's here's what particip- you're telling participants, this seems to be what participants are hearing. And they're not matching up. So you need to either tweak your message or, as I said, we need to put clarification on the website that this transaction means this or will take this amount of time. And that's what we're trying to do. But it's a constant feedback loop um, between us and the vendor. And again, as our our director of participant services said, our our vendor has been watching people um, who have been having issues with the new website, the new My Account, and they've made changes. And they're going to continue to tweak that to make it responsive to what people are looking for and what they're not finding or finding. What do you do when there is a case where uh, a particular participant really, really has a struggle? How do you go back and, and help that particular individual make sure that that person's made whole? And make sure that that person understands that the challenges that they encountered are not typical and that you've undertaken efforts to fix it, make sure it doesn't happen again. Either the vendor or FRTIB staff, a federal employee, will reach out and speak to that individual and and A, walk them through the transaction if that's what they're looking to do, um, or provide them the information on the policy, whatever the issue is, someone reaches out and talks to that person. Um, Many times that resolves both the problem and makes the participant feel heard. In some instances, participants are legitimately angry, upset, hurt, pissed, whatever words you want to use, that the service level hasn't been where they wanted it. And there, it's going to take a long time for us to regain their confidence. Um, a, a lot there and I'll leave it and, uh, and move to the other element of the monthly board meeting that I found fascinating. And that is uh, federal retirement thrift investment board I'm looking at this slide, retained Aon Investments to conduct a comprehensive review of the Thrift Savings Plan investment options. Is this something that happens on a regular basis, Kim? About every five years. And it says Aon completed the following tasks, summarized our guiding principles with respect to investment structure, provided initial evaluation of the investment structure based on these factors, compared TSP circumstances to those of peer plans, and there's more. Consistent with prior reports, Aon identified one recommendation for the FTR, FRTIB to consider, expanding the market coverage of the I-Fund to include Canada emerging markets and non-U.S. small cap stocks. Other than that, Aon looked at what you're doing as far as the funds go and liked what it saw. 
What does that say to you? What what was what was the board's reaction to that as far as how you're how you think you're doing? Um, we we think we're doing pretty well in terms of the funds that were invested. And one of the things that the Aon said in the meeting was that in the 90s, a lot of 401ks rushed out and added tens and dozens and in some cases hundreds of of fund investment options and participants were just overwhelmed. And so a lot of 401ks have sort of retreated back toward the TSP's model, which is a simple, clear, non-overlapping choice of funds. Um, But we, as I said, we do this every five years or so. And this type of review is what led us to um, ask Congress for legislation to add the S fund, the small cap, U.S. small cap and I fund our international fund back in the early 2000s. So we always are looking because there's always things, new investments, new markets that we could potentially add. And we want to make sure that we're always keeping our head up and looking. Based on our analysis, Aon believes the current lineup remains in the best interest of the plan's participants and beneficiaries. For that reason, Aon did not find any of the asset classes and sub-asset classes evaluated in detail, particularly compelling as a standalone replacement or additional option to the TSP lineup. Now, I am not a fiduciary and I am not a financial management expert, but that sounds to me like they're basically saying, other than maybe expanding the iFund a little bit, don't touch anything. That's what they're saying. All right. Um, It's great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the TSP in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The number one CRM, Salesforce Customer 360 for Public Sector, is an integrated platform for public services. It features relationship management, case management, and lots more. To learn more, go to salesforce.com slash government. Federal agencies have a fiscal 2024 deadline to hit marks for the Biden administration's requirements on zero trust. Amy Hamilton is senior cybersecurity advisor for policy and programs at the Energy Department. She tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash the cyber portfolio at her agency is nuanced. So we do have a nuclear portfolio. We have the National Nuclear um, Security Agency who falls in our portfolio, as well as environmental management. And what that really has to do a lot with is nuclear cleanup that people might not be aware of. And so this is a very intensive um, physical systems and operational technology portfolio. And, you know, this is obviously a no-fail mission. In addition to that, we have the uh, power marketing administrations. The PMAs are responsible for power, primarily along the West Coast. Super important mission as well. And of course, we have our open science technology, you know, things like the Human Genome Project has come out of what we're doing here at the Department of Energy. So these very nuanced missions, we have very different requirements for. And so we have to balance the cybersecurity and our risk management based on what those missions are. Well, um, I'm curious then, um, how do you prioritize and what are your top priorities in the next year, uh, maybe in the short term and, and maybe over the next three years to meet the federal zero trust security requirements? 
So I'm going to go a little bit broader than just zero trust because I think it's super important to understand um, Executive Order 14028 for strengthening, you know, the nation's cybersecurity and where zero trust is a very significant part of that portfolio. And so what we did at the Department of Energy is we built it into a business case to try to get our mission owners to really understand what this means. So the first part of this for the mission owners is understanding that multi-factor authentication that's phishing resistant is a really important way to protect our identities and that passwords are just not cutting it anymore. And the other thing to that is that point in the executive order, which is encrypting data to the maximum extent possible. Both MFA and encryption are part of zero trust, but we've really prioritized those as the most important thing because then if an adversary is able to obtain that data, if you have phishing resistant credentials and it's encrypted, it's very, very unlikely that they're gonna be able to decrypt that data. So that's our number one priority. The number two thing to that is zero trust and cloud adoption and really moving down that environment. I know we're going to be talking a bit more detail in the pillars and the steps later on. So I'm going to save that. But we really said, OK, like that's the intermediary step. But the part that's super, super important is this partnership that we have to have with industry, and that's the supply chain. And we absolutely have to know where that fits into it. So we really are taking it from that you know, three-step approach. And then continuously, we have to do our monitoring for vulnerabilities and reacting as we're aware of new threats. And for instance, the geopolitical landscape this year, I think there's been a lot of surprises for all of us. Well, one of the common issues we do hear from federal agencies is how to implement zero trust principles across multiple networks and domains and functional silos. How are you trying to uh, reduce the complications of that at the Department of Energy? So one of the first approaches we took at the Department of Energy is we developed our ZTA plan as a department. It was very much like a strategy uh, back in July of 2021. And from there, we went to our departmental elements, which includes the national laboratories, and said in one year, we need you to have your individual sites with a, with a plan. And so we've been very, very successful in that step approach with the headquarters doing it first and then the sites. The other thing that we started to do is what we realized when we looked at our headquarters plan is there was a really, really great plan but it just focused on each individual pillar. So what we decided to do is what's called tabletop exercises. They're very common in consequence management or the Department of Defense. But we said, let's look at some tabletop exercises across our different pillars. So we're taking very common scenarios, walking across it and realizing, you know, when it comes to people, processes and technologies that we have different opportunities across each. And some of them are even low cost solutions that we can implement very quickly. And so we're kind of looking for what things can we implement short term and then what things do we have to address on a longer term roadmap? Sounds like a very proactive approach. Thank you for mentioning that. And then another question for you, Amy, you know, federal agencies obviously have a lot of additional compliance requirements as they approach cybersecurity that, you know, are codified by law, FISMA, et cetera. What, what concerns do you and your colleagues have about federal zero trust adoption at one end while still ensuring that you're able to, you know, meet these comprehensive uh, so-called check-the-box security requirements that you also must meet? So, 
I think that too often we focus on compliance versus risk, and it really needs to be risk-based decisions, talking to the mission owners and really understanding you know, what steps that they have taken. We're working very closely with our partners over at the Office of Management and Budget, as well as CISA, and discussing different ways that the metrics could be changed in the future to capture a risk-based approach instead of just a binary yes or no. Because in a lot of cases, and um, I've spoken to many of my counterparts at other agencies where we have operational technology and internet of things, it's really not the same level of possibility. So if you have a system, for instance, um, that's um, located on top of a mountain, you know, you might not have that same MFA, you know, credentials that you would have on a standard business system. So uh, FISMA works great for business system is not really what works well for operational technology. So one of the things that we've done is partnered with the federal CIO Council Innovation Committee, and we are standing up a community of practice for IoT and OT and looking at zero trust in cloud adoption principles. And we'll be developing a guide from that. Um, working with a lot of our partners, for instance, NASA, um, they don't have PIV on the Mars rover. I know that might be a surprise, right? So you have to look at, you know, what are the alternate things that you're putting in place and that people aren't looking at as just, you know, what is the checkbox, but really what are the things that you're doing to make sure that you've addressed risk? And then lastly, uh, and, and kind of doubling back to your comment about your tabletop exercises around the five pillars, you know, in addition to those five pillars is also those foundational elements for um, trying to unify automation and uh, visibility and orchestration tools to ultimately get to a more zero trust architecture. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what you learned in those tabletop exercises and how are you moving forward to you know, create this underlying foundation for more unified automation? Um, the unified automation, machine learning is absolutely essential, but the only way that you can get to that is to really understand your processes and processes have to be repeatable. Uh, one of the things that we found was that there was a lot of HR processes when it came around our identity pillar that different people had awareness of that maybe were not as well documented as we like. And then how are we going to incorporate that into our policy decision making and our policy engine? So that's a lot of what we're focused on with these tabletop exercises is you know, looking at each individual use case. And the next scenario that we're going to be doing is going to be focused around our data pillar. And then how do each of the other pillars interact with that? What are the different policy decision points? How do you do risk scoring? All those good things that came out of the NIST guidance. But I think that a lot of times people are like very comfortable with their pillar. But when you look at, you know, how do these things interact? And I know that at least in our department, but also talking to other agencies, there's been a sense that, you know, when it came to the network, the device pillar, identity, things that traditional CISO offices have been dealing with a long time, they're very comfortable. But especially with the data and application pillars, there's a lot of opportunity for growth in those areas and then for understanding the interaction points between the different pillars. So we're really um, trying to use these scenario-based opportunities in order to understand it and then to be able to implement it better. Amy Hamilton of the Energy Department with Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. 
And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow with Guy Torres of the IRS. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.